Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, the show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. The only real estate brokerage that donates 50% of its net commissions to 501c3 nonprofit organizations dedicated to fighting climate change. Lex, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to the conversation a lot. It is my pleasure to be here, Ethan. And we always like to get the show started with a little bit of background on who you are, how you got to be doing what you're doing at the current moment. Very cool. Yeah, so, wow. Uh, I Right now, I am communications director at the Biomimicry Institute, but it was definitely a journey to arrive here in this moment. Uh, I started my education in journalism and it was a couple years in there that I realized I actually don't want to be objective. <laughs> I want to have an opinion and I want to be able to advocate for what I believe in. And so I changed my track over to public relations and I was in Georgia at the time and I knew that I had to be somewhere else, uh, not hating on the culture there, but it was a different kind of vibe that I wanted. And so I drove across the country and landed in San Francisco. And it was a few months in that I had started at a PR firm there and they were representing uh, big banks and law firms. And, and I was just getting into my career and trying to understand like what my purpose is there. And it wasn't until maybe about seven months in that I got assigned to this client that was representing this thing called the fracking industry. And I had never learned what climate change was. And I, at the time I was 22 years old. And when I first learned, I was like, wait a second, full stop. What are, what are we doing? Why aren't everyone talking about this right now and it totally blew my mind that we were in this kind of situation and so i ended up leaving that firm and finding another pr agency that was fully focused on sustainability clients and i started absorbing every possible piece of content that i could of like what is happening in this world and what can we do about it Bill McKibben's Earth was still one of the most monumental books that changed my life. And so it was a few years working at the sustainability PR firm. I got to work with amazing clients from Renewable Energy to Bill McDonough at Cradle to Cradle and really amazing clients doing such good work. But there was something missing for me. I, I ended up going to the climate march in New York, I connected with a bunch of people and still felt like I wasn't doing enough. I was telling stories about amazing work, but I wanted to do more. And I was battling with the stages of climate grief and just felt so hopeless. And then I came across this one talk by Dana Baumeister and she introduced the concept of biomimicry to me. And for the first time in like half a decade, I felt hope. I felt like this is what I can do. This is what we can solve the, the challenges that we have. And from there, I ended up uh, joining the Biomimicry Institute and 
now get to spend my days not just telling stories, but educating people on what biomimicry is about and reconnecting with the natural world in a way that is fulfilling and there are solutions that exist. So my hope is 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 returned. Yeah, and I'm excited to get into it. But before we do, I got to ask, what made you come to the opinion that you wanted to have an opinion rather than be objective? Was there some experience that you had? Oh, great question. Well, I remember being in school and for starters, then it was, I remember being told, you know, you're going to have to do the 4am fire alarms. You're going to have to go chase. You're, you're going to have to put yourself in situation. And how many classes I took with taking out the the fluff, as my professors used to say, in my language and being able to be so straightforward and cut through all the adjectives and the details. And so there wasn't a specific moment, but it was over time just thinking my writing was succinct. I felt proud of what I was producing, but to not be able to have an opinion and, and share my voice and stand up for things that I I wanted to to support and it was obviously well before sustainability. So I, I think it was more about just being a human and being part of the human world. I don't even think I had words and the knowledge or the wisdom then to recognize really what was going on with me. But I knew that I didn't, I respect the journalism industry and so many reporters like how you're able to do what you do is incredible. And now obviously I know from a higher level standpoint, there are also a lot of reporters who do have opinions and who are creating their own kinds, but that's not what I want. And that's part of the integrity of journalism. I wanted to uphold and respect that if I'm going in knowing that I'm not objective and I've got biases, I can't serve in the way that the industry really needed. No, that's fair enough. Thank you for sharing. I just find it interesting because I think I've gone like the opposite way where I came into college like 18, like I've got all these opinions, I'm gonna take over the world, I'm gonna become the emperor of the planet, all my ideas are their best, to, to, to the total opposite where I'm like, okay, I just wanna be as objective as possible, I wanna let other people share their opinions, have none of my own and just be a vessel to like elevate people who are doing good work. So I guess the idea of people doing good work is still a bias, but I don't know, it's just like taking care of others, being a good person, I guess we all define it differently, but the ideas of like love and service, it seems like universal ideas, but that's, that's one thing or the other. Um, let's, let's talk about what is biomimicry because we've only discussed it once thus far on this show. I'd love to hear all about it from you. Yeah. So when we refer to biomimicry, there are the best way that I like to introduce it is it's a perspective. It's a lens that you can see the world in. And so as a design methodology, there is actual steps that you can take. And what we're doing here is learning from the way that nature has successfully survived uh, for the past you know, billions of years, but also it's more so that the species alive today hold secrets for us. They hold blueprints for what a sustainable ecosystem would look like. How did life evolve today to make us humans be able to thrive in the way that we do. And so when we're talking about biomimicry, we're going back to seeing how would nature do X? And this part is about function. And so there's a lot of de design methodologies out in the world, but really when we're talking about function, it's 
the mechanism by which nature is doing something that we can then translate into solving our own design problems. And so from the methodology, there's a whole design thinking process and it's practiced in different ways throughout the world. But there's a main school of thought that I was taught uh, through my, I went through the master's of science program at Arizona State University to get my master's in biomimicry and how it was taught there. It's everything you go from scoping all the way to evaluating. But really what you're doing is there's three ways that you're looking at nature. So nature as model, and this is looking at forms, processes, and systems. Uh, so for example, a solar cell that is inspired by a leaf, and we're replicating that. We're also looking at nature as a form of measurement. So what would nature do here? What wouldn't nature do here? And after 3.85 billion years, nature's learned what works. And so we can measure against, are our designs also creating conditions conducive to life? And then that third aspect is nature as our mentor. And so in this perspective, we're really looking at valuing nature, not just from what we can extract from the natural world, but what we can learn from the natural world. And so these, there are things that we don't really account in our industrial way of doing things like nature um, ecosystem services. We don't pay the natural world for clean water. And so there's different ways that we need to learn how to fit in with this world, that this is our planet. And so everything that we're designing from the biomimicry lens is really observing planetary boundaries and honoring the fact that nature is based on mutualism, collaboration, and reciprocity. And so throughout this design process, we're also being able to offer gratitude for these origins and for our mentors. And there's a side piece there that I actually think is really important when it comes to conservation efforts, because we have a lot of people talking about like, you know, a couple decades ago, they, you remember seeing all the images of the polar bear and this fear mongering perspective of sustainability that person in Mississippi is not going to think about the polar bear and care or see how it relates to them. And so this different kind of perspective as nature as mentor is saying that if we lose the polar bear, we're actually losing a lot of research and development. How does that fur hold heat? How does, and it's like, that's a part of it. I hesitate to go down that road because uh, I see the value in that natural being existing and not being enough. Innate but value. Right. But if you're going into a CEO boardroom, they're not going to care about protecting the polar bear. They want to learn about the efficiencies and the money they're going to save and all these things that are going to benefit their bottom line. So there's a different way to look at it. But really, ultimately, what we're saying is we owe it to ourselves. It's our responsibility to contribute back to the earth in a way that is regenerative, just as the earth has given us the ability to be regenerative. And so that design thinking keeps industry in a way that they can learn from nature and create these kinds of solutions that fit in. But then I also think that, honestly, I look at biomimicry as a philosophy. I look at it as a way of life. It's about seeing the natural world, coming home to the fact that we are natural beings, and then being able to create a design perspective from everything that we do, everything that we touch, the 
how we embrace our entire day and looking at it and thinking we are part of earth, everything is interconnected. And to be the kind of conscious humans that we know ourselves to be, we have to embrace this kind of reality and make decisions that ultimately create conditions conducive to life in every single context that we're working in. Man, I've, I've got some people that I should connect you with. That I think you would love to talk to. Um, there yes, was so much really. value in what you just said. Um, I think we're going to get into each piece kind of as we go through the conversation. Mm -hmm. It's hard to kind of respond to that because there, there was there was a lot in there. And but I, I, it's, it's amazing to like hear your philosophy. I am curious how it evolved. But before that, had, did you see the uh, the movie last year with Yo Johan Rockstrom and David Attenborough called Breaking Boundaries? I did not, but you, now you got to see that movie. Wow. Okay. Yes. Anything with Netflix. Sir David is like, you know, grandfather of the na natural movement. All yes, please sign me up. Yeah. Well, Johan, it was like, he spoke at the UN. He he's like kind of the, I don't know what to call it, like the leader or like he has this whole theory of planetary boundaries, like nitrogen cycle and, you know, climate, climate cycles and it's, it's just it's i'm not i'm not going to butcher it but um it's a really great it's a really great film and it talks about how there's it's more than just climate and there are these systems that sustain life and we have these different meters that we can kind of track to see these conditions we know from experience are very conducive to life others aren't and we are modifying these inputs but what i did want to ask you is is what your perspective is on the current discourse around regeneration versus sustainability and i think it does come a lot into this idea of using living things as a means to your ends versus um treating them as ends in themselves that's like from kant's philosophy of deontology i'm not sure if you're familiar with that but you were you were talking we were talking about innate value of a living thing it mm -hmm. seems like sustainability is, is is around let's continue doing what we're doing let's keep building 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 up the human empire and so we can just keep it going. Whereas regeneration is about, let's bring more life into the world. And as soon as I heard that idea, like it was, I think Jennifer Menke came on the show. She's the founder of Regenerative Earth. And that was the first time I had ever spoken about it. And then learning about regenerative agriculture, I've been hooked ever since. And I don't see why the discourse, this should be all around regeneration and sustainability is BS in my mind, but I wanted to get your thoughts on this. It's such an important concept because I mean, the environmental movement now, after decades of work getting into mainstream media, we finally have sustainability as part of the conversation. And so it's a hard term. Honestly, I, I've considered scrapping it from all of our materials because when I think about sustainability, it's basically maintenance. And that's not where we can be right now because we've kind of dug ourselves into a place where we can't just keep doing what we've been doing. And so actually Don Smith over at Kiss the Ground, he's a soil scientist. He's got this great graph where what we're trying to do is if we were to look at regeneration going up a curve, because we're trying to come up with cycles and, and this, not just giving back more, it's about balance. And so imagine that it's kind of like healing where things regenerate in a way that you're designing so that it can 
sustain itself in the long term, yes, but that it is feeding back nutrients along the way. And so ultimately, we do want to get to a place of sustainability. But like, imagine if we're going up the curve with regeneration. And then once we get to a place that's balanced for life and not just humans, but life to be able to thrive here on this planet, then we can get to a place of sustainability and then do what we've been doing in a way that creates conditions that are regenerative for ecosystems to continue. But unfortunately, a lot of media and a lot of companies, now we've got issues with greenwashing. And when you're not being very clear about the definitions of what sustainability is versus regenerative, we're really missing the point. And that's why when I think about biomimicry, it's, yes, it's a regenerative approach, but it's about looking at earth and how it would function here. And what we're missing is that life thrives on this, this concept of interconnectedness. And so when we embrace nutrient cycling, when we look at how life functions in certain ecosystems and how everything is giving back to something else, if there's no concept of waste in nature, everything is a resource for something else. That's what I think of when I'm thinking about regeneration. Um, we also have some issues right now with uh, understanding of really the materials that we're working with. And there's this, I, I think, there's doom sometimes when people are thinking, oh, well, we're never going to get back to the industrial revolution. Like before, before that happened, we're, we're never going to, we've screwed everything up so bad. There's no coming out of it. And what I would say to that is no, you know, you're right. We're never going to get back there because we've created chemistry. We've created materials. We've changed the context of our earth, but we don't have to go back. It doesn't mean that we can't look at what we're working with right now and create solutions that give back in a way that we restore ecosystems and that everything honors that reciprocity. Well, here's one thing I don't appreciate about, I don't even know what the movement would be called, like wokeism or something. Um, this idea that things are horrible, it's never been worse and everything's a catastrophe and we're all being abused by I don't even know if it's like, it's not even politics. It's just some, some sort of like doom and gloom out there. But really the trend over humanity, I always like to look at things in a really long scale, whether it's a geological scale or in the scale of humans, just a couple millennia, things are just trending up and getting better and better and better. Not in the case of biodiversity and life at this moment, but generally for people, things have continue to get better and better and better. So there's no reason why we can't use these amazing resources and tools and technologies that we've created to foster a world that is better than pre-industrial revolution. Personal opinion thrown in right there. Let's get into talking about uh, the Institute itself, the Biomimicry Institute. Um, what do you want to say? Maybe like the mission, what exactly you guys are doing on like a day-to-day -day basis, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I'm so grateful for my team and being able to be part of um, this group of people that are so passionate about different aspects of the natural world and design. So we're a 501c3 pro uh, nonprofit, and we have uh, four actual initiatives and in how we touch the earth in different ways. 
And so it starts with uh, young people. And so our youth education initiative, basically what we have is both a curriculum that is aligned with national science standards, it's STEM-based. And so we work with, um, actually right now, we've had, it's like five or six years now, um, six through 12 grade teachers. And so it's the youth design challenge. And basically this, we make it as easy as possible for teachers to take this curriculum, put it into what they're already learning about, and you should see the incredible ideas that these young people come up with. And so they basically go through the biomimicry design process and they create an idea that's solving a local problem. And we're also piloting actually a K through five uh, program as well. So we can really expand that reach. Like if I would have had this education growing up that young, I, I would have like not wasted so much time being able to figure out who I am and how I'm connected to the earth. And hell yeah. Yeah. So it's not just about climate change, but it's also every sustainable development goal that we're trying to, to bring in. And so we train the teachers and we have professional learning opportunities for them and really getting down to the next generation and empowering them not to wait for their future to land in their hands, but to give them tools that they need right now to make a difference in their communities. And from there, we also have um, innovation. And that's an, another initiative that we work with. And so this gets a little bit higher up with the startup community. So we have the Ray of Hope Prize program that we offer. And this essentially looks at startups that are already in the world working on nature-inspired design, and we help them refine their biomimicry, teach them how to communicate the science effectively to audiences, and give them a platform to connect with investors and other leaders in the space so that they can essentially get out of the valley of death um, for a lot of startups that they fall into. And on that same initiative, we also work with uh, the Launchpad program, which is working with researchers and um, labs that, so rather than having this innovation get stuck you know, in the lab, we help empower them to get it out into the world. And another, so this is all kind of grounded in Ask Nature. And so our inspiration initiative is really surrounded around education tools. We have a a free guide to, it's called the Biomimicry Toolbox. You can walk through everything you need to know to practice biomimicry. But Ask Nature is just this amazing database where you can go and ask, you know, what would nature do here? And so it's like, how would nature illuminate? And you get to learn from the organisms that are there. We also have some collections, like we put together a collection for COP26. And so we're offering these kinds of ideas so that learners of all ages can start understanding, not just learning about nature, but learning from nature. And then our latest initiative, which I'm so stoked about because uh, on multiple reasons, um, but it's around systems change. And so we just recently launched a pilot program called Design for Decomposition. And it was based off this report that we uh, debuted a couple years ago. And that's an industry report looking at the fashion industry. And the question was, is what would the fashion industry look like if it functioned like an ecosystem? And ultimately through that research, what we found was there is a missing piece and industry is leaving out the fact that nature disperses and decomposes. 
And so from that report, we are able to launch a big collaborative initiative with many players involved. Uh, and we're looking at the millions of tons of fashion waste that are piling up. One of our main uh, cities right now is Accra, Ghana. And so a lot of what we think of sometimes when, when we're trying to buy sustainably for fashion, we're like, let's go to Goodwill and we'll use secondhand or we'll donate our things. And we feel like we're doing good, but really <laughs> these materials end up getting bought and then they just pile up. And there are if you, I, the images are just so vibrant in my mind that you can't unsee the waste that we've created. And so what we're trying to do is figure out how to get these decomposition technologies that are going to work in ta tackling the existing waste that we have, while also creating strategies that going to inform industry brands um, and also municipalities, which I'll circle back to, of how to design for decomposition in the first place. And so this is a collaboration that's not just for fashion, but like I was saying with municipalities to say it's waste management as well. And so there's, it's gonna be incredibly lucrative and it's an amazing opportunity to look at how that interconnectedness really comes into play here. Um, and so one of the things that I talk about with design for decomposition is that yes, fashion is our first, but really, this is for every industry. And it's another philosophical perspective of how we can see the world and how are we designing everything that knows that, like, for example, um, we have some recycling programs that, you know, you've read the news, like there, if you don't have the right numbers, then it doesn't like work. It doesn't always, like, I live on an Island and recycling is a, challenging feat here. Most of the time it gets shipped off somewhere else. So when we know that recycling in itself is broken, there's this bigger meta perspective that I think industry is missing when they're talking about closed loop design. We want to essentially, yes, design for the circular economy and have that closed loop. But what we're missing is the fact that nature doesn't have closed loop anything. Everything is interconnected. There is not something you can't go from a technical cycle to a biological cycle and expect that there's not going to be some things going. So like I have, um, I'm a free diver. And so I spend a lot of time in the ocean and wetsuits are a big thing for me. And I have been struggling to get a wetsuit that I actually believe in how the materials are made. And what I learned was, is there's some companies that are like, oh, well, we take recycled PET bottles and then we remake them and we put them in the wetsuits. Well, what I've now learned is when we're recycling polyester and let's say you wash it in your washing machine or uh, for me, I'm obviously not going to throw my, wa my wetsuit in a washing machine, but similar, it leaks. And so what we're actually doing is getting microplastics in our waterways based on this, what's a lot of people are calling sustainable design. And it's not to say that they are malicious in this. They don't know better. And so what we're trying to do is help inform brands and industry in that we can't keep polyester in any of our designs. It actually has to go. There's a long way of saying we do a lot of things at the Institute. <laughs> yeah. No, Lex, I, I, I love the way your, your brain works. You're like... <laughs> 
my my favorite type of person to come and talk on the podcast because there's just no way I can process like everything you said live <laughs> during the interview. So I get to go back and listen again to the episode as an audience and then finally like take in everything. What I wanted to ask you throughout all that, by the way, because it's all, it, there's too many pieces. It's, it's really all really, really cool. What I was thinking of in the middle though is, have you seen what Chernobyl looks like now? Uh, all the life and how- Yeah, 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 yeah. Brilliant, yeah. Yeah, so just in regards to like nature-inspired design, what do you think that says about the way we build our cities and our communities that once we leave them, that's when all the life comes back? Yeah, so one of the things, humans have such a interesting relationship with nature. If we look back at our ancestors, you know, they, they looked at the natural world as they had to survive. And so they eventually tried to dominate the, uh, the way that nature existed. And I, I don't think we ever broke that habit. Once we got to a place where we were safe, we're still trying to dominate. And that's the kind of behavioral change that we need to shift away from. When the world went into lockdown from COVID, there were these incredible stories of nature coming back of ecosystems being regenerated. There's a, there's a crater that's between Maui and Kaholawe um, here on the islands and it's called Molokini and it's an incredibly rich biodiverse uh, area. And it's also known for a lot of tourist visits. So they take a lot of boats out there. You can go out there and there's usually like eight to 10 boats with like 40 people on there. When they paused everything, within a couple of months, all the life that we didn't even know had left was coming back. And so that's for us to look at how we're behaving in the world to we've designed these structures around us and put ourselves in these boxes that are disconnected from the natural world. I respect the culture and the tenacity of New Yorkers. But going to New York City is terrifying for me because it's so unnatural. It's like there you're so separated and there's a reason why there's intensity in there versus you go out into the woods and somehow everything is calm. What does that say to the consciousness beyond what we're sensing? Like it's there's something so much deeply connected to us coming home to the natural world. And when we separate ourselves by these walls and these concrete structures, we're missing an essential element of us being alive. And that's why I think like, if there's a there's actually a really cool campaign that the Nature Conservancy did a few years back. Uh, did you see Nature is Speaking where they got a bunch of celebrities and they did these videos and they had like Robert Redford did the redwood trees and Julia Roberts was Earth. And there was these short videos that the central the underlying message was is nature doesn't need humans. Humans need nature. The Earth is going to be fine. We're not saving the Earth. We're saving human species, yes, but we're also saving all the species that don't have voices for themselves and the ecosystem services that we feel a lot of humans may not actually rely on, but everything relies on everything. So it's so deeply connected. And when we're seeing these examples come up of like earth reviving itself without human presence, it's not to say that 
humans are so awful. We just need to get smarter about what we're doing. Yeah, and we seem to do that pretty well. It just takes a, a lot of failure hitting your head and arguments and time. And I was yeah. going to say, uh, hashtag Holocene gang. Those are our, our, our homies, all the living creatures that have been alive the last however many thousands of years that is. Mm-hmm. Um, do, you, do you engage in discourse with people who, who talk about being like superior or above nature at all in your work? Or are you kind of totally in the other space all the time? I do feel like I live in an echo chamber sometimes with uh, people that are in this world already, but my mission is to not just be with the people that are already on board. And so I do put myself into situations that there are, let's just say some very different perspectives of the humans. And so it's been challenging in some ways because What I've learned, especially in the past year, is how to be passionate about what I believe, but not be so precious about it. And so one of the things is here on Maui, it's actually, it's fairly conservative in some ways. Like there's, there's a lot of people here that, especially when it comes to the high luxury resort, kind of bigger houses where people live here for maybe a month or three months out of the year, there's a, it's a challenging perspective because they're, it's not just um, from the earth and and Maui's ecosystem that they're kind of forgetting the value of, but they're not honoring the culture here of the native people that had their land taken. And so in, I am in regular conversation and just existing in my community with a lot of these people And so I want to respect their values while also not get infuriated by their values. And so one of the things that I've tried to practice is a little bit of Taoism in that with biomimicry, we're looking at the context of where we're at right now. If I were stuck on the idea that I wanted a perfectly regenerative life, I'd never get anywhere. And I would be incredibly frustrated and stressed. And I've been there and it's no one wins. And so if I can both embrace, like, I'm going to do everything that I can and bring these conversations and help people find the kind of inspiration and the action they need, while also embracing the flow of life and knowing that there are things beyond my control. And I'm not here. I'm not a savior. It's not about me. I am part of this world and I have my mission to play. And ideally it makes a difference, but I can't be responsible for the entire humanity. And that kind of release has allowed me to actually serve in a much more effective way. I love that. Is is Taoism, is that the yin and yang thing or no? It is about, it is based on, on a, a practice of really it's translates to flow. And so I like to equate it to like, imagine if you're seeing a, log in the ocean that log just goes with the waves it doesn't fight it doesn't force and so it's part of it it's one and so it's a philosophy of looking at life where you're not holding on you're not grasping and you're not trying to control anything you are showing up in the present moment and you're embracing that flow and that way of life very interesting 
So speaking of bringing differing ideas together to, to actually have progress, what are your thoughts on integrating ideas of biomimicry into the business world and the economy, which seems at this point, it's changing with younger people, I think, but there's a lot of focus on short-term profits and short-term gains and not having, you know, because nature thinks in terms of like eons, you know, like trees can live for hundreds of years. Um, what are your thoughts about, like, I don't know if I, I want to ask you about like finance or just general business practices when it comes to integrating like biomimicry. Well, the beautiful thing about biomimicry is that it can be applied in literally any industry, any perspective, any way that you're looking at life. From you could a, argue it already is it, in some totally. ways. Totally. Yeah, it's not actually a new concept. It the term biomimicry was coined by Janine Benyus in 1997 in her book. Uh, biomimicry and innovation inspired by nature. But learning from nature has actually been around a long time. Leonardo da Vinci was one of the first to be able to create artwork that you're looking at this kind of um, design perspective. And he wrote about looking to the natural world and, and emulating this kind of function. But biomimicry as a design methodology, that has been more formalized in the past 25 years. And so when we want to integrate it into business and even um, the way that the economy functions, it's, it's both of like, let's say you are designing a product. It's everything from the materials that are sourced to the, the way that, that the entire product is designed and considering the end of use. It's thinking well in advance of what the repercussions could be for this kind of design and making sure that it is checked through these kinds of signal, these feedback loops along the way. So ultimately when it is released into the world, it's not gonna cause more harm than good. And so it's also about processes, like how are businesses functioning? How are, there's a industrial park in the Netherlands that is, different kinds of industries that are all connected where waste from one plant is a resource for another. How are we designing our systems in cities that are interconnected? And that kind of perspective is something that can be applied across a myriad of, of ways that we're seeing the world, but also as an individual. There was, when I first got into the master's program, I remember this one part of the, the course where they started by just saying, are you a designer? And the majority of us in the class were like, no. There was architects in there were like, yes, of course. But me as a communication specialist, when I went into there, I was like, I, I don't think so. And then I got to have my mind completely change and realize that we are all designers. We design mm -hmm. what we wear every day. We design our lives. We design how we live in, in our own homes. And so if we look at that intention as designing in a way that is mimicking how life would function here, then we're practicing biomimicry. And if we're able to do that in our personal lives, then we're able to bring it into work or able to bring it into our teams. How, how does nature learn? How does nature spread information? How does nature come together? Like this design for decomposition initiative, how we're collaborating with different places in the world and also experts that come together. This is about looking 
like as you mentioned before, you're talking about short-term gain versus long-term gain. And you know, it's hard for humans to think long-term and there's no way for us to say there's just one reason why. It could be from people are struggling to put food on their table for their families or keep a shelter over their head. They're struggling with structural systemic racial biases. They're struggling with just getting by all the way to, they don't know better. There's, there's, I don't mean this in a negative mean way. It's just, there's an ignorance that a lot of people don't realize because they're so stuck in their own perspectives and their worlds. They can't think beyond. And so it's not even their fault that they're not thinking long-term. They're just trying to get by. And so where I find my challenge and opportunity is how can I make this intriguing and resonating with people that are just trying to get by? And part of it is, so there are three essential elements with biomimicry. One we've talked about with emulate, which is that direct biology to design translation, really honoring the science. And there can be metaphor, uh, metaphorical and literal translations, but it's that how nature does this. And we're going to emulate that. But that's, if you're just doing that, you're not always practicing biomimicry. What we need is a two other central elements to really make it worthwhile. And so the second is not actually a particular order, but another one of the other essential elements is ethos. And that's our moral responsibility as humans of part of this natural world to think about how we are part and to design in a way that is reciprocal, that is conducive to uh, benefiting beyond humans and really being good for the planet. And so that third one, is the one that I think is gonna be our in with the masses and it's reconnect. And it's essentially just saying that we are nature. And it's still somehow crazy to me that a lot of people don't think that they are they are nature. They don't think that they're an animal and that's wild. <laughs> but it's, it's just because it's what they were taught. It's the only thing that they've known. And so once they learn that they are an imperfect animal, it's both freeing and connecting to something so much bigger than themselves and they get to find that purpose and I think that's where we can hit a lot of people in a very inspiring and connected way by just introducing them back to their origins how boring would it be if we were perfect like what else would we have to do right <laughs> right I mean life thrives on suffering we grow when we have to endure something that's challenging. I know this a little too well, <laughs> especially from the last year that I've had. Um, but we really do need the challenges and we need the good so that we can appreciate that the times may not always be this way. And we need the not so good so that we can really find gratitude in the times that are better. Something I find very interesting, and I don't even have, oh, there we go, is neuro, neurology, neuroscience, and mm. um, decision-making. And I'm always trying to maximize my productivity, become the best I could be. If I was already there, like I said, it'd be really boring. Um, and there's this idea of like the reptilian brain, which is like the nature side of the human. And then there's the 
prefrontal cortex, which is like where the logic and decision making of like the, the I don't know, that's like the let's build the, the cement building because it's more efficient for what we're looking for kind of side. I don't know. Um, I wanted to hear your thoughts on this, this distinction between logic, like thoughts and feelings, logic and intuition when it comes to decision making, be it in your, yeah, just in your life in general, I think I would like, like to know. I, I really like that question because it, you know, I could actually reframe this slightly as intelligence and wisdom. What we have learned from a knowledge perspective and using experience and our intuition to act with good judgment, that would be wisdom. I, we can learn facts like how a bird flies. But if we apply that knowledge to design in a way that let's say we're dropping bombs, we're not using wisdom and intuition. And so I think there's an opportunity for us to use this kind of intelligence, but also recognize that like coming back to the way that the brain is structured, we do have this consciousness and this ability to be intentional in a way that our reptilian brain you know, isn't as, as privy to. And I actually, I'm fascinated by the study of uh, neuroplasticity and how mm. our brains are constantly changing and evolving and we can learn patterns in different ways. And that's another thing that humans get stuck in a lot is you get very familiar with your day-to-day. -day. And if you choose to live in a certain way, like, you know, like how many times people have been like, well, this is just the way that I am. It, that annoys me so much because like you think that that you're just using knowledge from what you have and you've decided this is the one way that you have to be. But where wisdom and intuition comes in is letting go of putting yourself in that box and saying that what was always will be. And instead saying what was, was, and it's shaped me to have the understanding of intelligence and wisdom that I have now, and that every moment moving forward is unpredictable. And I think our minds try to make sense of the world because it keeps us comfortable and had ha it has kept us safe as humans for a very long time. But breaking out of that is, is so exciting. Because then it's like seeing through the lens of a child again, where your imagination gets to invite you into new types of seeing the world and you're not stuck anymore. So I think that we need both. I think we need to continue to have this kind of logic and this knowledge forming so that we're always learning, but using our intuition and our wisdom to, to try to do good in a way that is regenerating our relationships and the way that we um, build and design and contribute to the earth. Yeah, well, something in there that you just said made me think of the end of the the, the third Matrix film where Neo's fighting uh, Smith and Smith is a logical machine who makes decisions and can obviously see that he's going to win the fight no matter what, all the code lines up, there's no way that Neo can win. And Neo like keeps getting up and trying to fight. And he's like, why are you fighting, man? Like, you, you, can't you tell you're not going to win? And he's just like, because I choose to, man. And that's just, I don't know, some, something in there. It's like, you can really choose to be whoever you are. Yeah. I think there are biological limitations um, in, in certain ways, but I don't think, I think you can 
innovate around those. I'm a true believer in the idea that anyone can do anything. Um, so that brings us working ahead. with limits and boundaries for the planetary context. So you are right. I mean, there's Correct. some things it's not like I'm going to be like, I want to change my mind to where I can fly. That's not possible. That's, I mean, it'd be really cool, but it's not going to happen without some kind of design influence. Like I can't will yes. my body to do it. No, you no right. Uh, but there are jetpacks that cost like half a million dollars in the this UK that they sell that you can fly on. Um, those are really cool. Um, so yeah, we talked about doom and gloom a little bit in the middle here. I just wanted to ask you at the end, uh, how do you personally deal with feelings of hopelessness in the face of like large ecological challenges? Um, and how has like hope played a role in your life uh, and giving, you know, keeping you going, obviously a very positive, happy person, but you know, we're, we're facing, we've kind of like talked, I don't even know how to describe it. Like there's a lot of ecological challenges, but there's a lot of solutions and it's like, mm -hmm. where, where are you going to look? You know, I don't yeah. know. I, I love that question because it it's actually something I get asked a lot because a lot of people do see me they're like you're so cheery and smiley and yet you work in the work that you do and right, you right. know that the earth is on fire right <laughs> like literally yeah. yeah um I I do I actually yes I have anger I have emotions I work through those emotional processing of do I want things to be different? Absolutely. But I have hope because I I look up and ahead, honestly, because I, I see trees in front of my windows. And that to me signals that the solutions that we seek for these major design challenges for how we want to overcome what we've done, they're in our backyard. They're here. We actually have all of this wisdom surrounding us, anything that we really want to solve for, the human ingenuity is incredible. And if we just ask the right kinds of questions and learn how to look to nature to solve these design challenges, like I am incredibly hopeful because I get to see like there's so much momentum happening. These incredible technologies that are coming out, everything from like Ornolux that, you know, I don't know if you, Think about all the, the glass that we have in our, our cities, for example. You know how many birds die just because they run into glass? Like they can't see it. And so <laughs> this German designer notices that birds, how come they don't ever hit spider webs? And so they learned that uh, birds can see UV and spider webs have UV in them. And so what they did was mimic that design in glass to where humans can't see it, but the birds can. And these are just patterns. And so it's like from there, or oh gosh, there's so many exciting examples, like Biome. Biome is an incredible company. They were one of our Ray of Hope prize teams. And this is a great example of how biodutilization comes together with biomimicry and that they're using mycelium from mushrooms to create more sustainable building insulation. And so yeah, this is, that. yeah, it's such a cool way to also work with bio waste. And in their process, they're mimicking the way that uh, systemic nutrient cycling in nature functions. And so I get to see these amazing companies, these amazing humans doing such cool stuff that's actually making a difference for climate change, for impacting um, design 
in uh, within different organizations. I mean, Microsoft is a huge innovator now. They've got so many biomimicry projects that are going on and we're starting to see a shift happening. And ultimately, Ethan, I got to say, like I I find hope because as someone who recently overcame about seven years of chronic pain where I wasn't able to function and walk like a normal human, everything that I'm doing now is bonus. I, I get to connect with amazing humans that care. I get to go out into the forest. I get to walk pain-free. I, I can only have hope because what else would I want to look at this? Like, do I really want to be angry every day and upset about the way that things are like, no, don't get me wrong. I hear Greta. I hear her anger that everyone deserves to have that time and space, but that can't be us all the time because then we will spend our entire lives living in fear and a mindset of scarcity. So we both have to tackle these issues, but also realize that Tomorrow, something crazy could happen. Later today, we don't know. All we have is time and all we have is this moment. And if we can come together and find just a little bit of joy and connection, then all the rest of the work is worthwhile. And if the world blew up tomorrow or if you have seen Don't Look Up, oh my goodness. Like I saw it. You know, if we had that kind of reality... We can't afford to waste any more time living in despair because no one every you know we're paralyzed if we live in that kind of mindset. So the way that I get up out of bed every day is knowing that it's a gift to be alive today. I can make a difference by talking to people and inspiring them and reconnecting with the earth and getting involved with my community and that's the best that I can do. And so I know that I'm, I'm enough. I'm an imperfect animal and I am enough. <laughs> you are enough. And Lex, I'll tell you, you've made this moment a true joy for me. It's been great having you on the podcast. Um, one, one thing I wanted to say is um, it's in, talking about despair. Um, when I first started the podcast, right around the end of season one, which is like episode 24, I had learned all about the problem of climate change. And I was learning all about the the striking issues, the existential problems that we were facing. And I started getting really anxious and hitting that climate despair. But then after season two, 25 more episodes and seeing like exactly what you said, that you get to see the cool people doing the amazing things. Now I've totally come out of that hole forever. And I'm like, there's too many people working on this. We're all, we're all coming at it from different angles. There's so many, different attitudes, different backgrounds, different perspectives. There's so much opportunity and I just love it. And there's other factors in there as well, personal you know, yeah. things just like what you mentioned with your chronic pain. But um, it's been great having you on the show. I always love to ask people at the end, any advice to have for young people passionate about building a better world, even though, of course, we mentioned a couple of things already. Yeah, uh, this has been fun. Uh, if I if I were to give any advice to the next generation coming up, I would just say that you matter. Your voice matters. You don't have to wait to graduate from college to, or even go to college. You don't have to wait to a certain age to make a difference. You have the empowerment now to use your voice and you are unique and that you matter and that you can make a difference today by just learning and communicating and talking with your friends and that ultimately 
we are all in this together. I, I couldn't agree more. I literally, I always say people like to make a difference, you literally need to just do something. Mm -hmm. That's it. Like just yeah, the do only something. failure is not trying at all. Yeah. Lex, thanks for coming on the show. It's been, it's been a true joy. Thank you, Ethan. You're welcome. All right, everybody. See you soon. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrboulder.com today.